friends, it's me, Stephanie, your host of Immersive Crime. Before we jump into this week's case, I want to give a little update on the podcast. I'm now available to be heard on Apple Podcasts, as well as Spotify and Anchor. So when you're spreading the word of Immersive Crime, you can let your friends know they have three choices to listen to me. And another cool thing is soon I'll be receiving official Immersive Crime podcast stickers in the mail. And once I get those, I'll put a picture of them up on our Instagram page at immersive underscore crime underscore podcast. And if you're interested in getting one of those stickers, just shoot me your address um, in my messages and I will drop it in the mail for you just kind of as an extra little thank you for listening. So this week's case is more of a lesson for listeners. Well, it's probably more of a reminder of a lesson because I'm sure that we all learned this as children from our parents or school assemblies or cartoons, but it's the reminder of stranger danger. No matter how friendly someone may seem or how great their intentions might be, just don't trust anyone. So trust no one, kind of like they tell you on X-Files, And if you don't know what that is, you definitely should probably check it out. You can probably watch it on any streaming platform. There's like 20 seasons. It's nerdy, crime. It's great. Definitely check it out. But anyways, this week is another unsolved case. It's 32 years unsolved, but it's still open and actively worked. It is on the cusp of being solved with many advancements in technology. Speaking of breaking news advancements, it is to me anyways, some of you might already know, I recently read an article that in 2019, a doctor by the name of Ed Green created a way to test mitochondrial DNA that could be run through CODIS. Now, if you're not sure what CODIS is, that is the data bank where they store DNA for forensics cases, um, genetic genealogy, so things like Ancestry.com, they put all your DNA in there, things like that. And before, there was no way to run that mitochondrial DNA to be compared to the nucleic DNA. So they're really working towards being able to solve these old cases that don't have that specific nucleic DNA. And I think it's really going to make a big difference in solving some of these unsolved cases. However, Dr. Green does say that it's a very expensive process at this time because it's in its infancy, and so it's not feasible to be done on a big scale right now. But hopefully, you know how science is and technology, we make strides really quick. By the time you get your Apple phone home, it's out of date. So hopefully, this science and technology can move quickly like that, and we can have some justice for these unsolved cases. Warning to listeners, this case contains subject matter that can be sensitive and triggering to some. As always, please listen with care. This is the case of Amy Mihalovic. Let's get started. Sit back and visualize. The year is 1989. Some songs that could be heard on the radio are Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley You know the one that the Foo Fighters use when they rickroll different protests? 
and Red Red Wine by UB40. A lot of earworms were in 1989. And oddly, it was a time for some more reggae-style hits because also this year, the song Don't Worry, Be Happy came out. A lot of the fashion is what we're kind of seeing now in 2022, but the hairstyles were definitely different. In 1989, it was big hair, big bangs, side ponies, and scrunchies, which scrunchies are in now, so that's not too different. But I do have a feeling that there was a lot of Aquanet hairspray used in 1989. We are in Cleveland, Ohio on Lake Erie, more specifically the quiet place of Bay Village. This suburb of Cleveland gets its name because it's literally right in the bay of Lake Erie. It was named one of the safest cities in the area to raise a family by the magazine Family Circle. This was a time when being a latchkey kid was in full swing. Now, if you're not familiar with this concept, it was created in 1942 during World War II. Kids would go to school and return home to an empty house because their father was at the war and their mother had to go to work to support the family. The actual term latchkey kid became a name in 1970s and 80s. Once again, these kids would come home to an empty house with or without siblings and be alone for a couple hours until their parents got home, usually watching TV, having a snack, going to a friend's house. And it was created with the idea and pushed forth by media that it would teach kids how to be self-sustaining and responsible for their actions. Let me introduce you to the Mahalovics. Mark, Margaret, Jason, and Amy are the members of the Mahalovic family. Mark and Margaret met in high school in Wisconsin and fell in love. Then they married in 1972. Mark worked for Buick as a sales representative and Margaret worked for Trade Time Magazine. The Mahalovic family moved from Little Rock, Arkansas to the suburb of Bay Village in 1984 for Mark's job. Jason was the older brother. He was two years older than Amy. At this time, he was in the seventh grade and Amy was in the fifth grade. She was going to be 11, but right now she was 10 and it was two months before her birthday. Her brother Jason was interviewed and he is quoted saying, Amy wasn't stupid by any means. She might've been naive, but she was actually really smart. Amy was in the gifted or advanced classes in school and she loved animals especially riding horses. Two of her favorite things to do was to go to a nearby nature center that was called Lake Erie Nature and Science Center and the local stable called Holly Hills where she would ride a horse named Razzle. With Jason and Amy being latchkey kids, as many kids were at this time, they had the classic rule to follow, be home by the time the streetlights came on. Did any of you have that classic rule? I lived in a rural area and my friends lived miles apart from me and there were no streetlights and so we were either at their house or at home so I didn't really have that rule to follow. But I did have the other rule the kids had to follow and that was to always let their parents know where they were or when they got home by telephoning them. So these rules allowed Amy to spend a lot of time with her friends. Her best friend was Kristen Sabo. The Sabo family looked at Amy as their adoptive daughter as she would spend so much time with them. In October, the school year is in full swing. 
Amy goes to school from 7.45 a.m. to 2.05 p.m., while Jason, because he was older, would go from 7.45 a.m. to an hour later at 3.05 p.m. Jason and Amy would ride their bikes to school most days. Actually, most kids in Bay Village would ride their bikes everywhere to get around. On October 27th, which was a Friday, it was approaching Halloween, and the weather was cool and crisp especially coming off that lake nearby. They call it the lake effect. This morning started like any other morning for Amy. She got up, she got dressed. Today, she decided to wear a green sweatsuit, her favorite riding boots, her turquoise stone earrings that were in the shape of horse heads. And before she left, she grabbed her white windbreaker. She also let her mother know that she'd be staying later at school because she was auditioning for the fifth grade choir. This made Margaret really excited because Amy was showing interest in something that Margaret did when she was in school. During the school day, they had an assembly with local law enforcement, the Bay Village Police Department, about how to remain safe when talking and dealing with strangers and what not to do when involved with a stranger. I remember my school giving us these assemblies right before trick-or-treat, and they usually included how to remain safe in the neighborhood and community and always checking candy and things like that and just being vigilant when you are interacting with someone you don't know. When the dismissal bell finally rang, Amy actually headed outside with her friends. You see, this morning, Amy told a white lie to her mother. She wasn't staying after school for auditions because those weren't really going on. Amy was actually heading to the shopping center nearby. They all left their bikes parked at the school and walked to the Bay Village Square. It wasn't very far from the school, and it actually wasn't that far from Amy's house. Now, Bay Village Shopping Center isn't really a mall by any means. I mean, they have some shops, and they do have an ice cream place. But just like everything else in Bay Village, this is just a small-style strip mall. If you're not familiar with what a strip mall is, it is shops that are lined up building by building, side by side, in a row, or a strip, if you will. This trip to the shopping center wasn't just to get ice cream or to hang out with her friends. There was an errand that Amy needed to complete. Amy told her friends that she had received a call on their family landline from a man who said that he worked with Margaret. He let Amy know that Margaret was up for a big promotion at work and he was having trouble finding the perfect gift for her mother. Amy told her friends that the man asked her to help him because he knew how close she was with her mom and that Amy would know the exact perfect gift to celebrate her mom's promotion. Of course, Amy was going to do whatever it took to make her mother happy. So she told the man that she would meet him at Bay Village Square. She was there to meet him between 2.15 and 2.30 because it was a short walk from the school and they got out at 2.05. When the man approached her, witnesses stated that she was seen talking to him in a very natural way, not uncomfortable, nothing seemed strange. Some kids interviewed even thought that it was her father. That's how comfortable Amy looked talking to this man. After the man and Amy talked for a few minutes, they were seen headed to the parking lot, and that was the last time Amy would ever be seen again. When Jason, Amy's brother, arrived home at 3.10 p.m., he called his mother as usual to let her know that he made it home. But he also let Margaret know that Amy was not there. 
Their mother let Jason know that it was okay because Amy had stayed after school for auditions. Also, Margaret will later tell investigators that Amy called her around 3.30 p.m. to let her know that she was okay. Now, there wasn't any way for Margaret to know where Amy was calling from because at the time there wasn't any caller ID or any way for Margaret to identify where Amy was calling from. So her mother just assumed that it was from their home and that she was following their family rule. When Margaret finally got home at 5.30, she realized Amy wasn't home. Margaret knew that this wasn't right because Amy would always ask for permission to go anywhere or do anything. Margaret, of course, started to panic. She called the parents of Amy's friends to see if they knew where she was. No one had any idea where Amy might be. Margaret then went to the school to check to see if Amy was still there. But alas, the parking lot was empty, with the exception of Amy's bike still in the bike rack. With this find at the school and Amy nowhere to be found, Margaret went to the police department to report her missing. Miss Mihalovic arrived at the police department at 5.57 p.m. The police asked questions, the usual ones that they ask when someone is missing, but then took action immediately. They even had her information on the evening news that night by 11 p.m., as well as they had contacted the FBI in the area for them to help as well. Right away, search parties were deployed in many different areas searching for her. Amy's father and his friends went out to the woods to look for Amy. He was quoted as telling news that he thought it would be a good place to look because it would be like her to go out there to see animals and maybe she got lost. At this point, the only people who knew what the plan was when they went to the shopping center that day was Amy's friends. And when those kids heard Amy was missing, they started telling their parents. When the parents would call in these tips to the police, it wasn't like the police could just pull call records. You see, in 1989, the only thing they could pull are long-distance call logs. And they did. They pulled the Mihalovics long-distance call logs and... Those just showed calls from family members to and from, and the Mihalovics were familiar with all those numbers. So that led the police to believe that the man that called was one that was calling from a local number. Something else that was interesting is that in 1989, there was also no surveillance cameras um, at shopping plazas, apparently, because the bank had a camera, but nowhere else had a camera. And so they had to rely on witnesses to gather any information on who was seen with Amy that day and also to narrow down a timeline of any movements. So with the information that was given to police, they determined that when Amy called her mother at 3.30 p.m. on Friday, she was actually with her abductor, which is just so creepy to me. Two people stepped forward and gave descriptions of a man that they saw Amy with. However, the descriptions were a little bit different, so it led the police to draw two different composite sketches, but basically what the composite sketch said was the man was between 5 feet 8 inches and 5 feet 10 inches. He was white. He was between the ages of 25 and 40. One witness said he had eyeglasses, but the other did not, so they drew two different men, one with glasses, one without glasses. Um, the FBI also came up with a profile that people should be on the lookout for anyone that matched these sketches. 
or the description that the FBI profilers came up with. But these things also included like a sudden change in behavior, sudden finding religion, someone drinking more, basically actions that would cover some guilt. Weeks would go by without anything happening. Amy's birthday, December 11th, came and went and nothing was found or nothing broke in the case. Amy's father reported many years later to a documentary about the case that he knew deep in his heart that he would never see Amy again. With every passing day and every holiday that passed, Amy's family was aching for news or anything that would help bring her home. This case literally drew over 10,000 tips about Amy, and the police followed up on every single one, the police or the FBI, but nothing helped find Amy. And six days later, on February 8th, 1990, a jogger named Janet Seabolt was running down a rural road in Ashland County. Ashland County is about 50 miles away from Bay Village. Janet reported seeing a light green material in the wheat field that caught her eye. Miss Seabolt went over to have a look to see what it was, and to her shock, it wasn't just a material, it was the body of a little girl. Janet quickly ran to a nearby farmhouse and called the police. When authorities arrived to the scene, they quickly identified the remains to be those of Amy Mihalovic. When police started to process the scene, they noted that Amy was wearing the articles of clothing that she was last seen in. But things were missing. Amy's riding boots, her backpack, and her horse head turquoise stone earrings were not there. The crime scene investigators combed through and collected anything in the area that could be evidence. 300 yards away from Amy's remains, they found a curtain and a blanket. This curtain was pretty unique and described as homemade. It was kind of quilted looking. Pictures of these, uh, the blanket and the curtain will be on our Instagram page as well. The blanket was just a normal kind of felt looking blanket. To me, they seemed like something that you might find at a hotel room, but that's just my opinion. Take a look on our Instagram page and let me know what you think. I'll also post a picture of Amy as well. Something else the police did was set up officers in intersections to write down the license plates of all the vehicles that were driving in the area. Because, as you are probably familiar with, murderers will usually revisit sites of their crimes. While processing evidence, they found fibers on the remains of Amy. These fibers were gold and tan, which were consistent with those found in the interior of GM Oldsmobiles. There is also a piece of tape with hairs on it found near Amy's remains. When tested, very basically tested, none of the Mihalovic family matched these hairs, including Amy. Now, these hairs were missing the follicle or the root, which is where the nucleic DNA is stored. The nucleic DNA is what is tested for comparison to CODIS, so this evidence collected cannot be compared to the database at this time. This data they have in Amy's case is mitochondrial DNA. So even though we are 22 years from our last case of the Bricka family and things have progressed, it's been at a snail's pace. 
So even in this case, they had to be very careful on how they tested the physical evidence as they would need to store some for future advancements in testing. But as I mentioned in the intro today, science is making strides to be able to test mitochondria DNA to a specific person. Investigators were looking for someone that they knew something about the Mihalovic family, because as it turns out, Margaret was getting a promotion at her job, and they believed that their suspect had knowledge of the area of which Amy went missing, where she lived, and her remains being found. When the medical examiner conducted an autopsy of Amy, it was determined the cause of death was a stab wound to the left side of her neck and a blow to the left side of her head. This fits with Amy riding the passenger side of a car when attacked. That hasn't been reported, but in my conclusion, based on the evidence of the car interior fibers and the wounds, it all points to Amy riding in the abductor's car. Things in Amy's case will come to a standstill. Maybe a trickle, but the case is still open. In 2001, unfortunately, Amy's mother passed away from complications of her autoimmune disease of lupus. She started drinking very heavily to help cope with her loss of Amy, and that didn't help the autoimmune disease. It's so sad to think how that she never had the answer while she was still alive, but I'm sure she has found peace and is now with Amy. next bit of my research took me forward in time to 2006 when investigators had a press release on Amy's case. They were letting the public know that other children, other little girls matching Amy's same description, age, demographic, location, everything matching Amy had also received telephone calls from an unidentified male calling claiming to be a friend or a relative asking to meet for shopping for one reason or another. Now, they didn't let the public know how long they've known about these other girls receiving these calls, but it definitely seems like the suspect was hunting for a victim long before Amy. What this has done is help police find connections between Amy and these other little girls receiving calls. And what they found was these kids had visited the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center. All of the visitors sign in with contact information at the front door of this center. So, you know, when you go to a metro park, they have a logbook where you can sign your name for notifications of different events that they have. It was something very similar to that. So they believe this is how the suspect received all the information on these kids. So the next thing that happened jumps us forward in time again, and we are in 2016, so it's 10 more years from the press release and 27 years from the beginning of the case, and now authorities are able to process the evidence found on the blanket and curtain. And as I told you before, the blanket and curtain were found 300 yards away from Amy's remains, so they were never 100% sure whether or not the blanket and the curtain were involved in the case, but they collected it as a just-in-case. But because of the advancements in forensics and science, they were able to confirm that the blanket and the curtain were in fact involved in the dumping of Amy's remains. There was animal hair that was found on the blanket and the curtain that was linked and tested to the Mihalovic's dog, Jake. So that was their confirmation that the curtain and the blanket were involved. Yet again, we're going to make another jump in time, this time to 2019. 
30 years from the start of the case, when the investigators would receive a very important yet very strange telephone call. This strange call came in from a woman who has not been identified publicly by authorities, claiming that her ex-boyfriend fits the descriptions of the composite sketches and the FBI profiling. This woman stated that in 1989, she and her boyfriend, Dean Runkle, were living about a mile and a half from Bay Village Square. She also let them know that Dean had family who worked at the shops at Bay, Bay Village Square. She stated on the very night of Amy's disappearance, Dean did not come home, which was very out of character for him, and that he actually called her that evening and asked if he had heard any reports or news of Amy Mihalovic, which was extra weird because those reports had not been on the news yet. She told police she always wondered how he knew about those news reports before they came on. The woman also reported that she and Dean had just visited Ashland County before Amy's body had been found there. When the police started vetting this tip, there was some major confirmations. Dean Runkle had a gold and tan GM Oldsmobile registered to him, the same type of vehicle which the fibers found on Amy's remains matched. The next damning thing the police discovered connecting Runkle to the case was his license plate. So remember how I mentioned the police wrote down all the plates coming and going out of the area where Amy's remains were found? His plate was on that list. With all these mounting evidences, Dean was brought in to be interviewed. During these two days of questioning, Runkle said some things which were just creepy as all get out. He told investigators that 1989 and 1990 were very dark times for him. When he was asked if he knew anyone in the Mihalovic family, he answered by saying it was possible he met Margaret at a bar or something. The police then asked if he had ever spoken to Amy on the telephone. To which he replied, if he did, he probably thought it was Margaret on the line. I mean, okay, maybe. I come from a family where all of the women, my mom, me, and my daughter, all sound very similar on the phone. So I guess I could see that, maybe. But I don't think that I started being mistaken for my mom until I was over 10, more of a teenager. I don't know. Anyways, something else that was weird that he said was this if he ever spoke to Amy on the phone and he didn't think it was her mom it was probably the wrong number at that I say insert R.I. roll here that is a bit out there investigators also asked if there would have been any time that Amy could have been in his car his reply was and I quote okay but I don't know what the situation would have been the police soon realized that he was answering the questions in ways to be considered as cooperating with them, but they pressed on. Another question they asked Runkle is, could your DNA be on the curtain or blanket that was found near the remains, which he gave another weirdo answer. Surprise. He said, yeah, it's possible my DNA could be on those items, but if it's there, it was planted. Of course, classic, right? During the second day of questioning, the police asked for a polygraph, and Dean agreed. 
Now, we all know that polygraphs are tricky because they're not usually allowed to be entered as evidence, and some people could have conditions that could allow them to pass or fail. But just for records' sake, the polygraph results did determine deception, but the public doesn't know what questions he failed on. Dean was supposed to come back for a third day to sign a search warrant for a storage locker, but he left town. Not suspicious at all, right? Investigators received a warrant without his permission anyways and did seize some evidence which was never released to the public. Dean Runkle is now 64 years old and living in the streets in Florida. It's likely police just don't have enough physical evidence, such as DNA or fingerprints, to arrest him. In May of 2020, two different witnesses picked Dean Runkle out of a lineup twice as the man that Amy was seen talking to. Something else I found when researching this case from author James Renner he is that he was around Amy's age when she disappeared, and it made a big impression on his life. He made it his life's mission to find her killer. He found out that Runkle was a teacher in Ohio, and according to Renner, Dean's teaching records were rather rocky. Students had reported being creeped out by Runkle, just some different things about his teaching record that was just kind of shady. James Renner also flew down to Key West to confront Dean, who was living in a homeless shelter at the time. When Renner asked him about Amy, Dean never denied anything, but he didn't come out and say anything either. It also came out that Dean was a volunteer at the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center. So, more connections. He seems like the correct suspect to me. There is another suspect in this case, Harold Bound. He was a son of the farmer who owned Holly Hills, and in my opinion, he had fingers pointed at him because he was just an odd man. It is reported that he had schizophrenia. Um, he was a Vietnam veteran, so he had been through a lot, and he would have mental breaks from time to time, and his father wouldn't let him around the public when they were at the stables, and so I think that people had reported his strangeness just out of that, that he was strange. Although I figured I would mention it because it was stated in interviews that he was investigated by the FBI and did not have an alibi for the night that Amy went missing. But really what that means is that he was home alone or he was out alone and no one was near him to confirm his location. So just thought I would inform you about Harold. But I think what happened in this case is that he was different than everyone else and people thought he was strange because he had some issues and just brought him up out of just that is that he was an odd duck. In the end, Jason, Amy's brother, still thinks about her daily. He goes on to say that he often thinks about what life might be like if she was here. Would he have nieces and nephews and how would their relationship be? He thinks about what kind of brother-in-law he would have. One thing he does know for certain is that Amy would be working with animals because that's what she ultimately loved. I think what's very important about this case is that this was 1989. It was way more difficult to entrap someone. And you know, this stranger called the numbers of young girls on information that they wrote down at a nature center. 
But now in 2022, they don't have to be that resourceful. All they got to do is troll the internet and private message young girls. It's something that I've spoken to my kids about, about literally trusting no one. uh, Because the internet is an easy outlet for these creeps. And I just think that that's so important. Like, stranger danger and not talking to someone you don't know and not trusting them you know just stay safe out there I think this case will have justice soon with all the advancements we're making we're getting closer and closer to solving some of these cases and I just think that we need justice for Amy and her family if you know anyone or if you know anything about anyone mentioned in this case please call Bay Village Police Department at 440-877-1234 or you can contact the Cleveland Division of the FBI at 216-622-6842. Remember, no information is too small or too big. Please, if anybody knows anything, definitely reach out. Please take time to say Amy's name today and her family's name. Keep them in your thoughts. Tell people about this case. Bring justice for Amy because she was here and she still matters. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. thank you again for listening to immersive crime this podcast is written researched recorded edited slaved upon hosted by me stephanie morris and i appreciate your audience thanks again and if you're enjoying immersive crime podcast i beg of you share it on all your social media platforms make all your friends listening to me Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time.